listening to Backstage at Lyric, the podcast that takes you behind the scenes at Lyric Opera of Chicago. Backstage at Lyric features in-depth interviews with singers, conductors, and creative talents at one of the world's great opera companies. For additional podcast interviews, subscribe to our RSS feed or visit us online at lyricopera.org. Soprano Deborah Voigt and stage director Garnet Bruce are backstage at Lyric. Immediately, you know, we see that she's got some temper going. I mean, the first thing she does when she comes in is accuse him of, of having someone else there. So uh, that's, yeah, definitely that's something that I would hope that the audience would see, a certain amount of agitation. And um, she doesn't like to be kept waiting. The door was closed. Why is the door closed? And, uh, it's a... It's, yeah, it's, it's a very famous entrance, it's a famous role, and, and that's daunting. There's no question about it, you know, but that singing a production that, you know, was done for Maria Callas, I mean, <laughs> how, do you, how do you compare to that? You don't. You just try and do what you think is best. In this case, we're taking the pessimistic Russian view, and... <laughs> <laughs> um, that indeed, once he sees that it says Scarpia, he knows that this, this indeed be, will be real. And there's even a little joke he makes when she's giving him instructions about how to fall, just like you got shot. And he said, don't worry. I'll look great. So he actually really continues the duet because he wants her to continue living because that will keep his art and his dream alive. And everything he does in that third act is to boost her confidence and to reassure her for life without him because he knows about the inevitable. Thank you for downloading this episode of Backstage at Lyric. I'm Roger Pines of Lyric Opera of Chicago. We're playing an audio transcript of the Lyric Opera Discovery Series session for Puccini's Tosca. For those of you who may not be aware of the Discovery Series, it's panel discussions featuring singers, conductors, directors, and opera experts. We do one session per opera, and they usually take place a few days prior to the opening of each production. The Discovery Series is open to the public, and it's a great way to get up close and personal with our artists. You can check out our website, at www.lyricopera.org for dates, tickets, and complete Discovery Series information. We include all of the Discovery Series sessions as part of the Backstage at Lyric podcast. And now, on to the Discovery Series panel devoted to Tosca, internationally renowned soprano Deborah Voigt, who's returning to Lyric to star in the title role, is joined by the production's stage director, Garnet Bruce. They bring tremendous insight as well as humor to a discussion of all aspects of Tosca. I'm your host for this session, and I hope you enjoy it. Good evening. I'm Roger Pines, dramaturg at Lyric Opera of Chicago, and I'm delighted to welcome you to our opening Discovery Series session event of the uh, 2009-10 season devoted to Puccini's Tosca. There should be a card on your seats, and that is for writing up a, whatever question you would like to ask our panel at the midpoint in our session. Um, my colleagues will collect the cards, and um, I will go through the questions as we're talking in the second half of the session, and we'll select 
several of the questions uh, to ask our guests. Lyric Opera is extremely grateful that despite her heavy schedule of final rehearsals for the demanding title role of Tosca, our production's leading lady is able to be with us this evening. Tosca is Deborah Voigt's seventh role at Lyric. She's previously starred here as Isolde, the Empress in Die Frauen Schatten, Salome, Sieglinde, Ariadne, and Amelia in Umbalo in Mascara. She's a great favorite at the Met as heroines of Berlioz, Verdi, Ponchielli, Wagner, Puccini, and Strauss. She's been hailed in innumerable prestigious venues from the major houses of San Francisco, Munich, and Berlin to London's Barbican Center and the Salzburg Festival. She's recently appeared at the Met in La Gioconda, Vienna in Salome, Paris in Ballo, Carnegie Hall in Gluckzalcest, and in a notable change of pace in Costa Mesa, California for a joint recital with Broadway legend Barbara Cook. Highlights of the 2009-10 season include Elektra and the Flying Dutchman at the Met, her Zurich opera debut as Ariadne, and her eagerly awaited role debut in La Fanchula del West at San Francisco Opera. Unfortunately, James Morris, our Scarpia, is unable to be with us this evening and sends you his deepest regrets. We're very grateful that at short notice, our stage director for Tosca, Garnet Bruce, will be joining us in his place. He's previously directed Tosca in Houston, Denver, Cleveland, and, and Costa Mesa. At Lyric, Mr. Bruce has directed Turandot and associate directed both La Traviata and Dr. Atomic. His other Puccini credits include Madame Butterfly in San Diego and a remounting of David Hockney's Turandot production for his European debut in Naples. Turandot has also brought him to Dallas, Cleveland, Louisville, and Grand Rapids. This season brings him return engagements at Opera Omaha for The Marriage of Figaro, Austin Lyric Opera for Bohème, and Austin and um, another company for Butterfly, but I messed up in my bio, sorry about that. Um, he's directed all over America, including productions for The Wolf Trap, Kansas City, Louisville, and Pittsburgh Opera Companies. He's closely associated with the Aspen Music Festival and is also guest stage director on the faculty of Baltimore's Peabody Conservatory of Music. So please welcome to the Discovery Series, Deborah Voigt and Garnet Bruce. usual story in a nutshell for those of you who have not heard Tosca before. In Rome, in 1800, Mario Cavradossi, a painter and revolutionary, and the singer Floria Tosca are in love. Baron Scarpia, chief of the Roman police, would like Tosca for himself. When a political prisoner, an ally of Mario's, escapes, Mario is brought to Scarpia for questioning. Scarpia gets nothing from him, and he's dragged away for execution. Scarpia makes a bargain with Tosca. If she'll yield to his advances, he'll arrange a mock execution. Tosca reluctantly agrees, but then fatally stabs Scarpia. She rushes to Mario, who is to be shot on the terrace of the Castel Sant'Angelo. Mario and Tosca anticipate beginning a new life together once the ordeal of the mock execution is over. But Scarpia triumphs. The execution turns out to be real. 
As the police rush to arrest her for murdering Scarpia, she throws herself off the parapet of the Castel Sant'Angelo. Debbie, is that all right? As one would do. (laughs) (laughs) Debbie, I'm always interested in what leads singers to particular repertoire. That is, whether they feel a certain role is inevitable in their development or whether instead they've come to it almost by accident. So how did Tosca come into your life? I was probably a a bit inevitable. Um, Just being a soprano of any kind means that you want to sing the role of Tosca. It's sounds a little ridiculous to hear the plot spoken like that, but, <laughs> but uh, it is a phenomenal role to play on stage, and I'm finding that as I progress in my career that that really is what becomes most exciting, is what the character is like and, and what she wants and what she gets to do. Um, I came to Tosca for the first time, I think maybe 10 years ago, in a production for the Florida Grand Opera, which is in Miami. And they asked me, well, who would you like to direct you? And I didn't know Garnet yet, so, you know. Um, But the next best thing was Renata Scotto. And I was very excited about working with her because, of course, she was a very famous Tosca. Uh, But I was a little nervous about that as well because we're very different, not only temperamentally, but vocally as well. But she was really great at helping me find my Tosca and not trying to sort of imprint her ideas and her uh, body language and um, characterization onto me. I'm curious as to whether there were insights that she had that came specifically, that that you could only get from somebody who had sung the role before. Well, certainly we talked a lot about pacing because especially in the second act, Tosca just gets so overwrought with emotion and some of the music is very, very, very difficult, and it, it, it would be very easy to, to spend too much vocal energy uh, while portraying the character. Um, ten years later, I can afford to, to play with that a little bit more, but the first time around, it was really helpful to have someone directing me who had sung the role before, and especially helpful because I am uh, afraid of heights. <laughs> and... Don't really like the jumping so much. And we had a jump rehearsal in Florida and arrived for this rehearsal. And they said, okay, run up the parapet, run up the stairs. Yes, okay, fine. And then I had to step up on a little platform and then I was supposed to leap from there. And I took one look at it and I started to cry. And I, 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 can't, I can't do this. And Renata says, oh, we fix it. We take away the pedestal. It'd be fine. Let's have coffee. They fix. So we went away. We had coffee. Bang, 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 bang. They fix it. Okay, time to do it again. Ran up there again, cried again, couldn't jump. <laughs> and she looked at me and she says, Well, you wanted to sing Tosca. And she threw herself off of the. <laughs> <laughs> so basically, I was shamed into my jump. And basically, the same thing has happened here. I, I was absolutely terrified of it, and my understudy said, I'll do it. <laughs> <laughs> I love her. I know she didn't really mean anything by it, but yes, uh, four jumps later, I, I finally did, did manage to do it, but um, I, it, it really scares me. Well, you need to do more skiing, because no. then that's how you learn to fall. Falling, probably. yes. <laughs> this is such a popular piece in the repertoire. Garnet, how do you account for the universal popularity of Tosca, which has gone on for more than a century? Um, blood, sex, tunes you can hum. I, it's, it's, so... You know, it's a marketing dream. Uh, no, it, uh, 
it brings a, a very, very swift story to the stage and some things that you can't believe people are doing, and they do. And they exceed both expectations as to what they're able to do. I mean, when you and Cabrerossi are you know, in the church and the highness just come out, um, it is thrilling. And the same way, Scarpia reaches into the basement and you get this great contrast. And I think that audiences really love contrast and having the piece, I mean, it sort of began to define uh, you know, Verismo, uh, which had only been around about 10 years as an sort of form of theater, and uh, it was going to be eclipsed by film in about 20 years. But here's this period where the modern attention span is finding its equal on the stage, and things happen in rapid succession. I think you also enjoy watching um, things unfold. I mean, we understand that there's a knife coming at the end of the second act. How do we get there? And we watch our protagonists and our antagonist um, sort of in this chess match and wondering, you know, what do we do and how do we do it? We almost live it with them. And when an audience can begin to identify with something, uh, I think that they take a little bit of ownership with it and keep wanting to see it. Curious as to whether either of you went to the play by Victoria Sardou on which this is based, and if so, whether it helped or hindered, or whether you just sort of forgot about it once you started getting into the Puccini, did, did it affect you one way or the other? Well, I, um, I'm embarrassed to tell you that I had never read the play. <laughs> and Garnet and I were talking, and he said, well, I have a copy of the play here. And I thought, well, gee, I've sung the role in two productions now, maybe I should read the play. So read the play, and yeah, it was very interesting because for a couple of, of reasons. I mean, we know that, that Tosca is a diva, that she's a, a singer by profession, but I didn't realize just how big a diva Tosca was. I mean, she was uh, involved in, in quite a, a scandal, if you will, where the Pope had to intervene, and she was a household name by the time she was 16. And so that played a little bit in some of our staging, um, in particular in, the, in Act One. There's a lot of uh, parishioners coming into the, to the church, and I just, um, we talked about having me collapse in my sorrow, and, and I just thought, you know, she's Tosca, and she knows that she's on stage no matter what's happening, and she wouldn't let people see that. So that was interesting. Also, uh, we see uh, a bit of her temperament manifest itself in jealousy, and when I've played the part before, I thought, oh, well, isn't that, yeah, it's kind of cute. She's jealous. But in reading the play, one of the things that Cavaradossi says is that her jealousy, how did he put it now, interferes with their happiness. So this is not a, a little character defect, if you will. This is a major, major thing for her. She just has no rationality when, when it comes to jealousy. And and this is something that I can relate to on a, on a certain level, being female, probably number one, but a little bit of the green-eyed monster in me. Um, but yeah, and so the, those outbursts of, of jealous rage that, that, that I, I'm experiencing them differently, knowing that this was really something that was real for her. It wasn't a game. It was out of control, and, and it was an emotional jump from here to, to, the, to the roof, and he knows what to say to her to bring her back and, and literally reel her back in to, to sort of sanity and, and um, the fact that he loves her and that there's no reason for her to be feeling this way. It's not rational 
um, this jealousy. But but uh, that was very interesting to me to see that it's not just a, a passing thing. It's a major uh, part of her personality. Well, and Sardou was very, very particular about details, and he wanted things to be authentic, and he wanted things based from real life. I, um, there's a large discussion about the choice of the church. It's a different church in the play. And Puccini clearly had spent more time in Rome and said, no, you want this one. And uh, they actually talked about it. Uh, Puccini met with Sardou and uh, talked about how to evolve the libretto and make some of the changes uh, from five-act French to three-act Italian and creating a structure that goes with it. And the French opera structure uh, was not what he was looking for. He was writing this new idea. And there's a trio in the second act. And Puccini didn't write very many trios. Um, he wanted to really sort of dialogue to lead him in places. But um, when uh, Cavaradossi believes that the French have conquered uh, at the Battle of Marengo, Vittoria, the trumpets come out, and Tosca is saying, Mario, shut up. And Scarpia is saying, come on, you know, have a little more so I can really send you to prison for something. And this 90 seconds is actually the dramatic center of the piece. And you can almost imagine him sort of plotting and calculating how he's going to lead his audience on this roller coaster ride all the way to the end. And uh, he would do it again uh, four years later in Madame Butterfly. Because of the battle that's mentioned, we can sort of pinpoint the actual date on which this opera takes place, can't we? June of 1800, yes. That's June 17, right. I believe, is what uh, history tells us. And it's the Battle of Marengo. It is. Google M-A-R-E-N-G-O and see what you find. Um, Bonaparte defeats Melas. I'm curious as to whether either of you have actually visited Rome, and if so, whether you went to any of the sites, the three individual sites that are depicted on stage in the opera. I have never been to Rome. Does being Tosca make you want to go? Uh, yeah, okay. Yeah. <laughs> Garnet, have you been? I have, uh, and I have pictures standing on the Castel San Angelo and realizing, you know, that there isn't a good place to jump. <laughs> so <laughs> that I've heard, that I've heard. Uh, but you also visit the church of San Andrea della Valle and when you realize that it was one of the first churches built with clear windows so that everybody could see the artwork and it is, um, it is big golden and white edifice with carvings and paintings on the ceilings and that was one of uh, the, you know, not a dark scary church but one of light and opportunity and art and celebrating artists' work and faithfulness. So um, when we get to it, you know, you try and not make it shadowy and scary, but try and make it a place of optimism and also really showing the church's power because it is people who uh, take the church for their own uses, this corruption that's underneath of it that I think Puccini is pointing to when he sees people using the church for personal gain, Scarpia. So Verdi had similar issues, Grand Inquisitor. I don't know how many of you are aware of uh, the history of the production that we're doing. It originated at Covent Garden, the physical production I'm talking about. You're going to wake about. up all the ghosts, Roger. Okay. <laughs> but it's one of the most celebrated productions, I think, in the whole performance history of this opera. So um, what accounts for the legendary status of this production, Garnet? Uh, the... Uh, 
director Franco Zeffirelli had avoided Tosca, and he was finally asked to do it by Covent Garden in 1964 for his friend Maria Callas and his friend Tito Gobi. And they were going to do Tosca together, and it was the first time that Maria was going to do the role. And so he made lots of decisions based on her and telling the story in a different way. Uh, many of you have probably seen the news out of New York about last night's avant-garde event. Um, and many people also say, well, Zeffirelli in 1957 and 1964 was also setting the opera world on its ear a little bit by doing things differently than had been done. And indeed, in 1900, Puccini was doing things differently. The American premiere of Tosca did not go well at all. Um, and the strong woman was deemed scandalous. And I, one of the research things says that they actually changed the staging and had her shot by the soldiers rather than... So no jump there either. Uh, Something to be said for that. So, uh, but uh, when you see the Italian painterly uh, ideas that uh, Mongiordino has created in this world, um, we're in awe of it. The first time that I walked on stage we are here in the summer to do technical rehearsals and lighting. I had not seen this before except in pictures. And you, you're part of history. And you realize the decisions, the staircases, the sort of angles, the things that Zeffirelli did to help singers tell the story, to get voices over the orchestra, to navigate certain passages. Um, in the second act, there's a place where we actually have a trap door. And uh, the torture chamber has got a second room downstairs. And he wanted the fires of hell to come lapping up. And, you know, it allows for Tosca to kneel there, center stage, rather than by the wall, and be supplicating and in horror while she's looking down at Cavaradossi being tortured. And then she can turn and look up at Scarpia and go... Or the tenor making Google eyes at you, <laughs> which is what's really going on. I'm like... <laughs> he's going... Do we need to turn his light out? No, okay, okay. Great. I can handle it. We can do that. Um, but so there, those are the ghosts that I speak about when you see this set and you see this world that they've created. And Zeffirelli was doing something different. He wanted to create, create something of the monumental nature of the church and of Scarpia's office. And so the pieces really overwhelm. They are twice as big as real life and moldings, you know, up to your ear in the church, and so that you really get a size that, you know, you're just seeing a part of something much, much bigger. And I think that actually makes um, the human story more poignant. Are there elements of, I mean, all we can see on video of that production is uh, the second act. So are there elements of the staging, that, the original staging that you're actually incorporating? Well, the doors are still the doors. So... <laughs> <laughs> so uh, those didn't change, but uh, that's a that's a lot of years ago <laughs> to have any sort of semblance of of, of um, and also I mean Garnet is is dealing with with singers who have done this opera a lot and he has had to um, allow some of us to do what we want <laughs> and uh, it's not been the easiest of situations for you no. so bravo thank well you done. but I uh, know my chapter you have to you deal with the people you have. And uh, the, they tell the story. <laughs> no, I said with all great affection, because it's, um, and what they bring. And there's a strength that Debbie has. And we talked about the strength of Tulsa's character. And it comes from this foundation in faith and finding those places in the score where she realizes with a small genuflection, you know, that she is of a faith and that she has this foundation that Cavaradossi does not. 
Cappadocia is not afraid to curse in church, where, you know, Tosca understands that there are some lines you don't cross. And that's been an interesting dynamic and dialogue that we've had uh, with Vladimir and with Debbie and also with Jim. And Jim Morris is, you know, one of the great living Scarpias of our era. He has done more performances of this than I think anyone still performing the role right now and has definite ideas, which I'm sorry he's not here to share them with us, but he, uh, well, because they've been um, enlightening in many ways. You know, what would Scarpia do? And also what works for an audience in 2009? What seems logical to us and what seems patently ridiculous? So that we get a sense that we are reinventing it for, through the prism of today, rather than trying to copy what worked for Tito Gobi in 1964 for the British. Debbie, you have a memorable first entrance as this character when she's rushing into the church. Um, can, you, can you explain what elements of the character you want to be absolutely present in you know, the first time we see her? What sort of impression you want this woman to make on the audience from that first moment? Well, I think immediately you know, we see that she's got some temper going. I mean, the first thing she does when she comes in is accuse him of, of having someone else there. So uh, that's, yeah, definitely that's something that I would hope that the audience would see, a certain amount of agitation and, um, yeah, she doesn't like to be kept waiting. The door was closed. Why is the door closed? And yeah. it's, a, it's, yeah, it's, it's a very famous entrance. It's a famous role, and, and that's daunting. There's no question about it, you know, but that singing a production that, you know, was done for Maria Callas, I mean... How do you how do you compare to that? You don't. You just try and do what you think is best. Um, as far as the um, how her pro- character progresses in the course of that long love duet, what does he say to sort of calm her down and get her into a sort of more loving frame of mind? Well, the usual things, you know. You're beautiful. <laughs> you're funny. You're, you know, your eyes are wonderful, and I love you. Which is basically what she wants to hear. Yes, don't turn until he says Tamo. Yeah, yeah. It's at, not over till he says I love you. Yeah. At this point, if you would like to send your questions, Mark, where should they send their questions? <laughs> to 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 the two center aisles. If you would pass them over, uh, my colleagues will come and get them and bring them to me so that we can have. Look at all those cards flipping towards <laughs> the aisles. There we are. Okay. Um, Garnet, you've directed Tosca three times before. What, if anything, surprised you about the piece in that first outing with it of putting it on the stage? Uh, what surprised me was actually how um, logically the Te Deum scene goes together. Having dealt with La Boheme and... Uh, other Puccini choruses, the relative's entrance in Madame Butterfly and things like this. Uh, the way that he set about setting up the religious procession and its order and how it progresses and where the certain prayers come in, you really saw someone doing his homework. And I spent nine years at the National Cathedral in Washington, D.C. as a choir boy and an acolyte. And we did, we do it every week. You set up processions and sometimes you have different priorities and uh, so knowing how the music builds to that, it actually is 
celebrating a crescendo of life in the church. And Puccini spent his formative years in the church in Lucca as well. And so that actually surprised me that he didn't just take a theatrical angle. He actually based it in reality. Um, by the end of the first act of Tosca, I think the audience can generally sense what sort of chemistry there's going to be, not just between Tosca and Mario, but also between Tosca and Scarpia. So, Debbie, without naming any names unless you want to, um, what sorts of changes, however subtle, uh, do you feel, say, in that long love duet in the first act, when you do move from one production to another and from one partner to another? And if you want to apply this question to Tristan and Isolde, by all means, go ahead. Uh, I'm, but, I'm not sure I understand. Well, this, when you move from, when you're singing with one tenor and then in the next production, do you, do you remember things that you've done differently as a result of your response to a different partner in a duet as substantial as that first act love duet? Sometimes, yes. Um, a lot depends on the chemistry of any given person that you are working with. And, and, and Vladimir and I have found some very sort of organic um, gestures and, and a very organic sort of relationship between us that I think is very sweet. And I think that it makes it very clear why she is so crazy about him, uh, because he's very endearing, and um, as Vladimir is as a person, but also as Cavaradossi. Um, so is there a sort of playful element that he brings to it that you can yeah, respond to? Yeah, he does. To? He does. He, he really does. He actually tapped me on the rear end as I was running out of the church the other day. I don't know. <laughs> I, don't know. I, don't know. I don't know if that one's going to stay or not, but <laughs> surprised me. Um, but yeah, I mean, it, it, it really depends if you're, you know, I, this never happens, of course, but if you're stuck with a tenor who has no sense of play or romance or, or passion that makes for a very long evening. I had to, I had to tell a, a tenor whose name I will not mention that he, you know, you are the boy. You have to sort of move this thing ahead. I can't be grabbing you. You have to grab me. So... Um, but I think, too, you know, the relationship between Tosca and Scarpia can be interesting, too, because I mean, clearly we, we understand that he's got a thing for her. But, you know, Tosca being Tosca and being a woman of, of importance and prestige and notoriety may find herself sort of attracted to the kind of power that Scarpia has. That's shattered when she realizes what he really is up to and what, how, how evil and horrific a man he is. But, um, yeah, and with somebody like James Morris, you know, he's easy on the eyes, not bad to listen to, so um, it, it well, can make a, a nice sort of, and know, it, Well, he situation. offers to help you. I he mean, does, yeah. Because Cabrerossi is cheating on you with this Marchese. Right. So, you know, he's going to help you get to the bottom of this and right. get to the truth. Right. Yeah, I wanted to ask you about that whole element of... Um, of Tosca, of, of there being some kind of unspoken attraction between Tosca and Scarpia. I mean, you really can make a convincing case for it then on the stage, or can you? Uh, there are a few moments on stage, and this, this moment that you just spoke about, mm -hmm. um, he sort of, he wipes away a tear, and there's a brief moment where I think she sort of thinks, hmm... And then immediately it's gone, it passes, it's very fleeting. And I don't know whether that's something that the house would see or not. It's definitely something that I'm thinking about. Um, 
If I, if I may, that, that was yeah. an amazing rehearsal that where we, where we worked on this. Um, we were on a break, and they were still discussing this moment. And so she picks up her score, and she goes and sits right down at the piano, and she plays this entire orchestral interlude. Um, and uh, You didn't know I had that in me, did you? I did not. There you go. And so uh, Tosca is the entertainer. And... Uh, <laughs> <laughs> and the performer, and uh, sort of playing through the rubatos and the suspensions of that moment as uh, she and Jim were just talking about it. So it was this dialogue uh, between two artists, but also became a dialogue between two characters that I will never forget. Too bad we can't incorporate that into the opera somehow. First <laughs> piano playing Tosca, that would be really wonderful. Um, well, after she kills Scarpia, she could have rushed off to Mario immediately thereafter, but instead she takes time and she puts the candlesticks beside Scarpia's corpse and the crucifix on his chest. So what prompts her to do all of that, to take the time, precious time, to just do that whole little routine? Well, I have to say that, you know, I'm sure that Puccini just wanted to drag it out and make it fabulous, so that's probably how it started to begin with. But that being said, um, she's a very pious woman and, and has just done an absolutely horrific thing. And, I, and, and maybe in, in some corner of her mind, uh, she's thinking that it's not quite so bad, that you know, the penance that she's going to have to do for this won't be as severe as she, if she takes time to set up a sort of burial, uh, quasi sort of... To honor him. To honor him. Um, and his commitment to some things. To some extent, yeah. So does she feel after this deed, does she feel anything other than horror? Are there any other emotions going on? Oh, I think she's horrified. I think she's a little proud of herself. I mean, you know, she's just done something to this man who was being absolutely horrific to her lover. And, and so, yeah, I think there's a certain amount of, you know, now I forgive you, now that you're dead, now that, you know... <laughs> Um, yeah, I can forgive you for that. So yeah, I think I definitely play it as a <laughs> sort of moment. Somewhere I read, it was talking about her innate sense of theater and wanting to be do Set something dramatic. Yeah. I mean, do you, is there an element of that there? Do you think? Probably. Uh, you know, I mean, certainly in some of the exchanges between Cavaradossi and I, I definitely assume more of the role of the diva. You know, well, he loves bit. to watch you perform. And he likes so. that, yeah. We have decided that that's... He's attracted to... Mario or Scarpia? Well, probably both, both of them, of course. <laughs> but Mario is who but we're Mario puts you on the pedestal and say, please act for me, sing for me the way that I first right. fell in love with you. Uh, but you were talking about the theatricality at the yes. end of the second act. Uh, well, in some ways, she's realizing that he will be found. And how will he be found? How will he be found? Brutally slaughtered or somewhat honored because anybody who knew him or worked for him knew what he was up to and who could have done this you know she's preparing for the audience that she will not see wow as far as, far as the sort of not the backstories but there's the basic lives of these two people Tosca, these three people I should say Tosca, Mario, Scarpia Tosca, what does she do when she's not singing and meeting Mario in, little, in their little hideaway? I mean, what, what, how does she go through a day? What does she do with herself? Well, 
there's not a lot of time for a whole lot else, actually. Um, I mean, I don't mean in the course of the one day in which the opera takes place, but generally. No, no, yeah, yeah. Yeah. No, I mean, you know, if I compare, I mean, she's an opera singer. I'm an opera singer, you know. Uh, She has a much more successful love life than I do, but... (laughs) Then again, he's executed, so, you know. (laughs) What does that say, right? Um, Yeah, uh, what does she do? She probably plays cards a little bit. Um, um, She's in church a lot, this woman. Um, so I don't think that probably leaves a lot of time. She's learning a new cantata, which is being performed in ten minutes, and you know. So, what about uh, Mario and Scarpia? I mean, Scarpia, we see him. He's uh, questioning a prisoner and sending him off to be tortured, and then he's he's in the church, you know, lusting after Tosca. So, what does he do the rest of the time? Um, he tries to assert control over Rome. Rome was in a time between the popes. There wasn't really any leadership there. He was from Naples. He was brought in to control the city. He's installed the secret police, his spies, Spiebi. And uh, there is also the military leadership from the Neapolitan kingdom, which was basically Austrian, trying to fight against the French. And so uh, Cavaradossi, being a Frenchman, uh, the sacristan sets that up in the beginning and just calls him a Voltairean, you know, a, a student of Voltaire. <laughs> he needs to be out of my church. Um, and Mario stayed in Rome for Tosca. And uh, he was studying art and got involved with political movements. And, uh, but he decided to stay even though it was a dangerous time because he was so in love with this woman. And... Um, he's just picking up jobs when he can. He's restoring, you know, damaged paintings in the church and uh, sketching. Uh, one thing I keep reminding Vladimir is that Rodolfo's the other guy, the poet. This one's the painter. <laughs> so, um, and then um, Scarpia is, uh, I mean, he's got a secret police. He's got a desk full of projects. I'm sure he's got a number of uh, worthy suspects that he needs to have locked away so that he can gain complete control. Um, We haven't talked much about the vocal side of things. So, Debbie, let me ask you, uh, we all know the big, expansive portions of Tosca's music, whether it's in the Love Duet or Visidarte or, you know, the end of Act Three, but we don't necessarily associate the role of Tosca with truly intimate singing, but there are a lot of passages where I think that is absolutely what is Required. So where do you find the moments where a quieter kind of expression really sort of comes to the fore? Well, it's pretty clearly marked by Puccini um, pretty well. And um, some of the text, especially in the first act, in the first scene with Cavaradossi, where she's describing their little cottage, and, and um, it's very intimate. And, and it's nice to be able to play with those moments. Um, there are a few places in the third act as well that is very, very lyric. Uh, The difficulty... Your your dream of Spain. Dream of Spain, for example. Uh, The difficulty is that immediately after that, there's a very stentorian, huge outburst, um, especially the second act, right before the, the aria that everyone knows. You know, it's a lot of very loud, very high singing, a lot of real angst and drama and it does make it difficult it's it's um, certainly the, the the challenge of of the role 
and they all have them. <laughs> so um, when you move from, say, your, one of your Wagner or Strauss parts to Tosca, do you sense yourself making any kind of vocal adjustments, or do you think they're, you know, the, the different colors take care of themselves, or is there something that you're consciously doing in Puccini that you don't necessarily in your Wagner or Strauss? No, I've never, I've never been a singer that did that, that thought, okay, now I've got my Wagner voice on, and now next season I'll be in Chicago and I'll have my Puccini voice on. Uh, I really just sort of sing in the, in the most healthy way that I, I can. Uh, and paying attention to what's being said and trying to make different choices of, of color based on the character and based on, on, on the music, not necessarily changing from one composer to another. There are a couple of lines that you have in the role, at least in Act Two, which can be sort of declaimed or they can be sort of semi-sung or completely sung. Mm -hmm. Do you vary depending on the moment or is there one mode of expression that you sort of prefer? I'm really sort of still playing with those moments <laughs> even. I mean tomorrow's our dress rehearsal and, and I may do it throughout the performances. I hope you do. I hope that, I mean, <laughs> yeah. I think that's why we, it keeps people coming back. Right, and... right. Um, these lines are lines that I've spoken before and this time I'm sort of thinking maybe they're better sung. They're not indicated as being spoken so... Um, I kind of half sang one of them uh, yesterday and, and then ended up speaking the famous Evanti Louis line. Um, so I don't know, really. Well, actually, when <laughs> you started, be in the moment. When you started to sing it today, it felt almost like playing, playing song chant. When you started, hey, Avanti Louis. I mean, yeah. it was really eerie. Yeah. And then you brought the humanity to it. So you like that? Yes. I, I forgot to ask you. Garnet, are there moments? I believe you going to say, no, I hate it, change it. I believe all of you. I believe it. Garnet, are there moments for any other characters that you think could be sort of semi-spoken or even completely Certainly, uh, spoken? Spoletta has moments where, you know, he's down in the basement of his register. He mutters a Latin prayer, which is usually said with a requiem when it looks like Cavradossi is going to, you know, end up not being tortured but being killed in the basement. And it's designed to torture Tosca and Exudum Navit. I mean, it just sort of rumbles down there. And uh, John Easterlin, who's singing Spoletta for the first time, is a very, very shrewd actor. And he mm -hmm. said, do we want that heard or do we want that, you know, sung? And I said, well, I think we want that heard. And he went, then I'm going to speak that if that's all right. And so we're experimenting with those things that make it live in the theater. That's our job. Our job is to make sure that it connects with the 3,400 ears in, or I guess 6,800 years, in the, <laughs> in the, in the hall. And uh, that it, uh, it makes sense so that we know what's going on at all times as things connect. And uh, Maestro Davis is doing the piece for the first time as well and is discovering things about the score, dusting off some of the traditions that have just become maybe tradition and not really what Puccini was intending. Puccini was so dedicated to his scores and driving his publishers crazy about markings and remarkings and breath marks and commas. And so, you know, when you look at the page of Puccini and you see what's edited there, uh, and he may have allowed one singer this or another singer that, and that's the sort of verbal legacy that comes with the piece. But when you do what he was really thinking, um, you really uh, start with a great foundation. And so that's what we do in rehearsal, and we build from there. 
in thinking about the challenges facing a stage director in Tosca, the thing that occurred to me first is actually the very end, because he gets shot, she discovers that he's dead, and the guys run up the stairs after her, she runs up, she jumps, and it all happens within, what, two minutes, barely, of barely. music? Yeah. yeah. How does that all happen on Mirrors. stage? Mirrors. <laughs> <laughs> no, uh, it... Uh, you set up moments of it. You hear this sort of panic and anxiety in the music that the tempo is building and building and building to this capstone finale. And uh, you just want to make sure that the stage picture echoes what you hear in the score. That's at least what I try and do, that you hear you know, this bit of confusion and chaos going on. And um, I keep reminding all of our supers, don't look up. <laughs> we don't expect her to climb the stairs. She's scared of heights. We don't expect her to climb he's, the stairs. He's, he is really, really, really downplaying how difficult this is. <laughs> I mean, supers are, are really necessary, and we have to have them, but they're normal Joes, you know? They don't, they don't read music. They, they're not, they don't have musical innate ability. Or, and, and so and some of them probably have never, you know, maybe even been on stage. So We did ask if they'd fired a gun before. You did? Oh, that was good. Yeah, yeah. That was so good. We picked the guys who'd fired guns. So it, it, is, it is more complicated than... It's very well-timed. Um, they, they have words that they know to move on. They may not know the whole story of the opera, but they know. And, of course, you know there are so many famous stories about supers. The mistakes. And mistakes, you know, <laughs> like the one about... Um, the supers going on strike or something and, and uh, in Italy somewhere and, and so they just pulled guys in off the street and they told them just follow the woman follow the Tosca <laughs> so she ran up the stairs and jumped and they ran up the stairs and jumped it may not be true but it ought to be it's, it's too good a story or you know they point the guns at the wrong person yeah, right. or not her a tenor what's a tenor <laughs> So keep it simple is also the <laughs> yeah, other. Yeah. Yeah. So. So, I wanted to ask both of you, um, talking about the, the, the practicalities of Tosca, have you, in any of the productions that you've done, has Scarpia ever been stabbed by Tosca with anything other than a table knife? Uh, no. Is, is she just, it's, it's always that? I think that the it's some... I've done have you read? Haven't there been some contemporary productions where she's actually taken a gun from somewhere and shot him instead? It could be. I mean, people, you know, you you play with Puccini at your peril, <laughs> and uh, if you're not going to do what he wrote for, then you really better have a good idea. Um, I mean, if it's a Lizzie Borden kind of Tosca, then maybe there's a hatchet in the room. <laughs> but um, <laughs> that might be interesting. Yeah. Well, if she's angry enough. Uh, you know, I was just reading last week that um, somebody in my neighborhood in Baltimore um, attacked a burglar with a samurai sword he had. And I was like, uh-oh. <laughs> so, I mean, these things actually happen. People do, at their defense, do things that you would not ordinarily imagine with knives um, and the steak knife. And it's, you know, it's in the moment. Uh, no, I mean, I, I haven't seen him bludgeoned yet. Another... Uh portion of, of Tosca that I think can be sort of perilous in terms of just putting it on stage is what you and Scarpia go through physically in the course of Act Two. He gets to throw you around a little bit. So have you learned any sort of tricks where you can say to your baritone, do it this way and then I won't get hurt on stage? Um, no. 
you know, that being said, we well, try it's, to be... It's, it's like dancing a little bit. Yeah, it is so. a little bit. I mean, I know that... I've got Jim Morris. He's it's like, it's like leaning up against that pole. I mean, he's, you know, that solid. And so that's really nice. I'm, I'm able to... And, and he's done this so many times. That, Didn't he um, say, he's like, hit me here. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. He and likes, you were like, you can go ahead and punch me. Okay, so... Um, so, yeah, no, we haven't um, had any mishaps... Uh, and Chicago's very careful. We have um, a rehearsal. What is that, Chuck? What is his title? Oh, uh, his fight coordinator. A fight coordinator, so that I don't stab him for real. No black eyes, uh, that kind of thing. So, yeah. um, All of you in the audience who are historically minded as far as lyric opera is concerned may remember that our first Tosca in our very first season was Eleanor Stieber. And Debbie, she is a singer with whom you share a lot of repertoire, not just Tosca and Fanchula del West, but several Wagner and Strauss roles as well. So I'm just curious what qualities, whether vocally or dramatically, or just artistically in general, what qualities of Stieber's do you... uh, What does she represent to you? Well, I think... Actually, the recording that I'm listening to at the moment is of, of Madame Stieber, and I think what I like the most about her voice is it always has a certain amount of youth to it and freshness and that's something that you hear from composer to composer and definitely something to to model oneself after Uh, I'm one of those you know opera singers who did not grow up listening to um, Maria Callas or Eleanor Stieber or or anyone else Um, the people that sort of influenced me were people kind of like and I'm going to embarrass her now because she's here but my junior high school music teacher He's sitting right over there. <laughs> and uh, it was really... Come on, Judy, stand up. Say hello, Judy, come on. Yeah. yeah. And um, really, that wasn't that long ago. <laughs> anyway, um, so, so um, I have tremendous respect for, for these wonderful colleagues that, you know, paved the way. Uh, but um, I didn't, uh, I don't, I can't really pull that card out and say, you know, this is what I really identify with. Some questions from the audience. Ms. Voigt, you have been a brilliant host for some of the Met HD performances in movie theaters. What are the particular challenges of that kind of work? <laughs> oh. <laughs> well, uh, it's very challenging. Um, for a lot of reasons. Um, n- number one, it's unpredictable. Anything can happen, um, such as a very famous, inter- famous international diva, whose name I won't mention, deciding that she will not come out of her dressing room at the appointed moment, and I'm suddenly left on camera live in front of, you know, and they're going stretch, 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 and she won't come out. And uh, So that's really kind of scary. But... Uh, Karma being what it is. Anyway, um, <laughs> and uh, there are moments, you know, when the, when the teleprompter goes out and um, you're left standing there with egg on your face. But in general, it's, it's kind of a lot of fun to there do. Was it some, certainly lets people see a different aspect of your personality. There were some terrific interviews that you did, I think, in Times Square. Right, that yeah. I was the Times Square hostess for the Mets opening night last year. So I was out there interviewing people at Times Square. It was so surreal. <laughs> it was really strange. 
um, for Garnet. In Act 3, does Cavradossi believe the execution will, in fact, be a sham? I, uh, it's one of the things you ask the tenor and we figure out where to go. In this case, we're taking the pessimistic Russian view. And <laughs> um, that indeed, once he sees that it says Scarpia, he knows that this, this indeed be, will be real. And there's even a little joke he makes when she's giving him instructions about how to fall, just like you got shot. And he said, don't worry. I'll look great. And um, your back is turned at that moment. So, yeah, but, uh, so he doesn't give it away. So he actually really continues the duet because he wants her to continue living because that will keep his art and his dream alive. And everything he does in that third act is to boost her confidence and to reassure her for life without him because he knows about the inevitable. Debbie, do you mind one more jump-related question? No. <laughs> okay. What is most comfortable to land on? <laughs> Let's see, six foot five. <laughs> um, uh, well, I, something soft, <laughs> preferably. Something soft. Uh, I have visions I have, of mattress upon mattress piled high for you to no, just sort of fall right I think onto. There's, there's foam at about about that. It's a porta pit. It's a yeah. Yeah, and from your pole vaulting days. Yes, right. Actually, the, the very the very first uh, Tosca that I that I did with Miss Scotto in Miami, I got to the end and one of the dress rehearsals, so I had on full makeup and it was very sweaty. And I jumped avant, and I jumped and I fell forward, and my face went right into the foam rubber, and I left the imprint of my face <laughs> in the rubber. And when I came to rehearsal the next day, the stagehands had cut it out and framed it for me. <laughs> and I still have it. I call it the Shroud of Tosca. <laughs> I mean, my little eyelashes are like, you know, but you can see I'm horrified at having to jump. Well, but you know, speaking about the jump, if I may, one of the things that's the most important about it is that it is, again, a testament of her faith. And the last thing she says is Dio," and the music soars to this climax, and you know, the lights turn on, and she's lit up like the beacon, just like that angel on top of the church. And that is the final moment that we want to remember. You know, I really... well, why don't we go to a blackout then? So... <laughs> <laughs> skip the jump altogether. <laughs> But like so many of the great tragedies, we have to see that the candle has been extinguished mm. and snuffed out. And, the tra- and that, there, the, there is the tragedy of the moment, hopefully, from what we see, that something that was so vividly in the picture has now been removed because of the circumstances. And so I make sure we focus on that moment right before the jump and what that means and make sure that that is the dramatic and staging climax of that two minutes that leads up to it because... There is the, I think, the point of the story. Ladies and gentlemen, we have a dress rehearsal of Tosca tomorrow, so we have to let these two go. And I want to thank you ever so much. This has been fantastic. You've been listening to Backstage at Lyric, the podcast that takes you behind the curtain at Lyric Opera of Chicago. For additional interactive content and to order tickets, visit us online at lyricopera.org.